There was a young rich woman that had become critically ill. Her sickness had come to no end. It was likely, according to the doctor, that she would have died within the year. Her family, the family that she would belong to, had just a nominal commitment to the church. They would go to a church only for Christmas and Easter, and that was it. And in that situation, they meet this young pastor in the hospital, and, and she starts to ask him, Pastor, if Jesus had healed in the Bible, he should be able to heal me today, shouldn't he? If God would only show mercy, then we promise all of our family that we will commit and recommit ourselves and come to church every Sunday and be always there faithful. And so the pastor challenged this family to pray. And so they started praying together. And to the amazement of everyone, God healed her completely of all her sickness. So the next Sunday, you have the entire family showing up on the front pew in church. However, week after week's pass, and it was only the woman and her husband that kept going to church Weeks pass again and their attendance started to be sporadic until everyone in the family goes back to the previous pattern where they no longer went to church. In fact, after a while, the woman started to rationalize all the process of everything that happened. Uh, perhaps it wasn't a miracle after all. The most dramatic sign that God could have given to her had been only after two months, all the power of that miracle had deemed to nothing. She went back to her wealth, to her stuff, to her self-sufficiency. You see from this story that miracles, and from the story that we want to see today, as we continue on our journey to the Gospel of John, Chapter 4, we come to the story of the heal, healing of this uh, rich, young, no, nobleman's son. And we see that miracles have a limited scope and usefulness. That if they don't lead to actual faith, if they don't lead to an actual transformation of your life, your spirit, then they become pointless. And this is particular miracles become superfluous, particularly when there's people that, like in case of Jesus, live with him, grew up with him in his hometown. And the home becomes the hard ground of what is normal, what people are used to, and all of that quenches faith and makes miracles superfluous. So here we, we come to John chapter 4. We want to end chapter 4 with this story. And we see seven ways in which Jesus' miracle toward this nobleman's son actually twists and changes things. What is familiar becomes unfamiliar. This is the second miracle that Jesus does. For those who were with us weeks ago, we saw the first miracle was the changing of bread into wine at the wedding of Cana. And that was a private miracle, a miracle that Jesus was reluctant to demonstrate. But now, his ministry has started. 
And we have the first healing. If you were here last week, we, we saw that Jesus was coming back from Jerusalem after the Passover week. And he had cleansed the temple, had previous conversations with Nicodemus and then with the Samaritan woman last week. And now he's back into his hometown. Only this gospel record for us this healing of a king's official, a son of a rich noble. While all the gospel tells us the first verses of our text, verses 43 to 44, in a more broad, elaborate description, they include not just Capernaum and Cana, but also they include Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. And there, there is a familiar home. He's coming back to his familiar hometown, but there seems to be unfamiliarity, a multifaceted change brought about by his miracles. Jesus is becoming a controversial person and the reaction of people is very sporadic and changes. Some positive, some negative and some positive but not real faith behind their positive response. So this is the first public miracle. You remember when Jesus uh, multiplied the wine, he said, my hour has not yet come. And now in our text we have two times and Three times and two more in this entire chapter 4. The hour has come. The hour for this, um, the identity of Jesus as a Messiah to be revealed. While the miracle of the wine, he, Jesus was very reluctant to reveal his identity. Now is the, the hour has come. Jesus' ministry has started. And so he's no longer hiding. And we see here this, again, change from the familiar. The familiar becomes unfamiliar. When Jesus miraculously and sovereignly goes and heals, speaks life to this young nobleman's son. But in the midst of all these miracles, despite the initial fascination with Jesus' miracles, despite the spotlight, people, particularly people in his hometown, still reject the person of Jesus. So you see how miracles are pointless if you reject the person of Jesus, if you reject the gospel and the message that Jesus brings to us. And so I have seven considerations that I want to bring to your attention from this text. This passage, this change from familiar to unfamiliar. And the first one we notice is verse 44. There is a change from acceptance to rejection. Have you ever become unfamiliar in your family because of your faith, because of your identification with Christ? And the answer that we have in the text in verse 44 is that Jesus had to face that. And the reason he had to face that is to fulfill his role as a prophet. That just like the prophets of the Old Testament were rejected, so Jesus shows that he's a prophet. Verse 44 says, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. A prophet. The reason why Jesus comes back to his own town, his entire own country of Galilee, is because he wanted to testify of being a prophet and therefore being rejected by his own people. Jesus knew by experience, we we see the other gospels as I said that, He not only goes back to his own town, but he even quotes to Nazareth in his own town, the ancient proverb, physician, heal yourself. 
That is a way of saying just like familiarity breeds contempt. That is to say that while it is not necessarily an universal truth, there's a general principle and there's some truth in that principle that that a prophet as is not respected, he has no esteem, uh, he, he's considered of no value among his own people. As, uh, as, and therefore, as Jesus, we must be prepared to face such rejection, to be despised and rejected by men, and in particular, your own hometown. That is the word home country. From, from that word, we get the word patriotic, the native place. The place where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And the sad truth is that a prophet may be accepted anywhere else in the world. Except among those who saw him since childhood. In his native place. Among them he gets complaints, doubts, mockery. All the way to stubborn rejection. So either our text Together with the other gospel, we, we, we take that Jesus either tried to go to Nazareth and he was then rejected. And so he comes now to Capernaum because of that rejection. Or we consider the whole entire region of Galilee as his hometown that rejects him. That witness sign and miracle after miracle and they still do not believe. They still remain in unbelief. In fact, uh, the gospel Matthew 13 uh, Mark 6 and Luke 4 tells us of Jesus going into the synagogue of Nazareth. And he is rejected by his neighbors who saw him growing up. And they take offense at him, at his message, at his words. They didn't believe that a son of a carpenter, a humble peasant, could be the Messiah. Even his own physical brothers rejected Jesus at this point. They did not believe him, as we will see in coming chapters. There is nothing special about this boy that we saw all of our life. And so Jesus doesn't do even many miracles among them, among the hometowners, because of their unbelief. The Gospels tells us that he even marveled at the unbelief of his own hometown. To the point that he faced the wrath from his own hometown, after this, the, the sermon, they want to kick him out of town and, and they wanted to throw him over the cliff because they consider his word as a blasphemy. This is a, nothing other than the rejection, the same rejection that Old Testament prophets faced all along. I think particularly of Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet who was despised and rejected. And Jeremiah 12 verse 6 that tell us that God was preparing Jeremiah. And he says, Even your brothers and the house of your father have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you, Jeremiah. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. That was the people that Jeremiah grew up with. Jeremiah, the son of a priest. And yet, because of his hard sayings, his sermons, then people started to hate him. Remember, Jesus had just gone into the temple, just like Jeremiah. He had cleansed the temple. And I was reading, particularly because of my teaching that I have to teach in Franklin, in coming, uh, the coming uh, academic year, I have to read this letter of the early church uh, written by Clement. Clement was uh, writing this letter uh, as a, a church father to Corinth 200, uh, 100 years after 
Paul writes letters to, to Corinth. And the church there in Corinth now had kicked out his own pastors that were faithful to the word of God because of jealousy. And I was fascinated by the, the answer. He says, listen, it wasn't the godly who threw Daniel in the lion's den, but it was the wicked to show that even people in the name of religion, like those people in the hometown of Jesus, in the synagogue, they can do things in the name of God. But all of this is because they hate God and they are rejecting the truth that Jesus showed. This is why John Dodd once said, True godliness is that which breeds quarrel between God's children and the wicked. There's something about those who are in Christ that if you want to follow Jesus, you must be ready to live without honor. And if you live without honor, you live with persecution, with opposition, with critics, with malicious plotting, all the way to pure hatred. And so if your family... Your friends, your closest people that you grew up with. They don't look with joy with your newfound faith. They don't smile at your seriousness in wanting to obey God even to the cost of their acceptance. Don't be surprised. And in fact, the gospel calls you even to actually rejoice. Because that becomes a sign that you indeed are his child. A true believer. The world hates true believer and just like they hated Jesus. Because your identity, identification with Christ leads that rejection. That change from acceptance to rejection. The second element that we see is Jesus is now moving from secrecy to witness. And just like him, have you ever had to still witness the spies, that rejection, the spies, that sense of being felt as unfamiliar? That is exactly what Jesus does. The time to hide like it was at the wedding of Canaan is now over. The time to uh, manifest my glory has come. And so Jesus still goes back home. The spies, he know that he will, they will reject him. Look at verse 43. After two days... That if we take the, 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 the chronological view, then therefore is after cleansing the temple, which may give us some hint that he might have cleansed the temple twice. And that makes even sad because it, he will cleanse it again. And the religious leaders have not learned the lesson right there. As sad that they kept doing things in the temple that were not supposed to be. But he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Galilee. And this verse seems to have no sense in light of the next. Why would he go back to his own town if he knows that rejection awaits him? Why would Jesus knowingly go to a place where they will reject him? And the reason is that Jesus still goes, even if it means facing rejection, to fulfill the sign of a true prophet. And particularly the prophet that we can think of is, again, Isaiah 53, despised. And rejected by man. We turned our back on him. He was despised and we did not care. And why did he face all that rejection and despising of man? Because he needed to pay for your sins and my sins at the cross. Our rebellion. 
are being like sheep going astray, our mockery of him to the point of the cross. As the crowd were mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross. He is the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. So when you face opposition, persecution, because of your faith, I mean, it better not be because of something in you or because you're a jerk. But when you face because genuinely you want to obey Christ, then the only thing that is able to get you going, the only thing that is able to help you in that situation is that sense of calling that Jesus and so do we as his followers amidst Wolves go back to testify the truth, even in the face of rejection, even in the face of family conflicts. Christians are called to this, to suffer for Christ. Because everyone who wants to live godly lives in Jesus Christ shall be persecuted. Hated by all men because of the name. And still witness through that pain. That's what it takes, friends. To be conformed to the image of Christ. We all want to be uh, like Christ. But part of the image of Christ is actually facing persecution. And many Christians don't want to uh, uh, look with eagerness to this aspect of the image of Christ. And the third thing we see in verse 45 and the, all the way to the first part of verse 47 is that we have a change from the doubt of the crowds now to with expectation. But that expectation is fleeting, as we shall see. When you become the center of unfamiliar attention because of your faith, it might have happened to you, and people are like, wow, tell us more. But they are not actually interested in the message and what actually has taken place. They like to talk about religion until it comes to what their sin requires to be dealt with. And so Jesus, because of his miracles, he's on the spotlight. Verse 45, unexpectedly, and in contrast with the previous verses, tells us that people receive him gladly, with open arms and eagerly. Which again seems to be a contradiction here, but not if you consider the response of Jesus after this. He says, you don't believe if you don't see miracles. The reason they welcoming, in fact, our text tells, tells us is because of all the things he did in Jerusalem. They were impressed by his miraculous signs. They were not impressed by his message, his cleansing of the temple, his prophesying about the destruction of the temple. Let's think about our day and age, how many people are doing this virtue signaling, Right? Uh, I think about the war in Ukraine. How many people you have seen, to, we, they put the Ukraine flag. They say, I stand with Ukraine. And now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually care for all the people that are dying. And, and, the, and the true innocent people who are dying in Ukraine. It's just that they want to do that as a virtue signaling. To show people that they're, that they're actually sympathetic with something. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually care. And so it's the same thing here. People are fascinated by Jesus. That this guy is one of us and he's famous. Let's welcome him. But they have not a clue about who this little boy who grew up with them actually was. Their reception is superficially based on the popularity of Jesus. On the fascination with the supernatural. They have no true concern for, for or repentance or sorrow for their sins. They're not counting the sacrificial cost of being a true disciple of Christ. 
And these crowds, we'll see in coming chapters, keep following him until Jesus tells them what awaits the true follower. And then they leave. They receive Jesus with excitement. Just because he's a miracle worker. But later, John 6.30, they say, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? You see that? To be merely fascinated or truly interested in Jesus for who he is and not for just what he does. There will always be people that approach Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They welcome Jesus for what he can do for them, but not for who he is. They love to come to Jesus, oh yeah, so that he can receive blessings, so that Jesus can give them a wonderful life. Just because of his powerful miracles. They love to discuss even matters of theology. They love for Jesus to fix all their problems and give them all their selfish desires. But they have no real intention whatsoever to embrace what the word of God entails for their life. Jesus is just like a crutch. If you're sick, you go to him. Jesus is like a cherry on the top of a nice cake. And the rest of it is my life. They have no true intention to repent from their sins, to turn away from them, to truly embrace by faith the person and the work of Christ. See, the, po the point is not to see in Jesus um, the most famous person on earth, but that He is God on earth, and that you need to bow down to Him as Lord of your life, and that you owe Him allegiance just because you are His creature, to the realization that you, yes, you broke His law, his perfect law in words and deeds and thoughts. And that he should rightly punish you because of your transgression toward him. Away from his presence in hell. But that in mercy he shed his blood on the cross. He paid God's wrath for you and now you turn to him and now you follow him. Jesus is the goal friend. Not a mean to your selfish end. And the failure to search Jesus in this way, focusing on the wrong things, even if it's good things like a miracle, we see, you perish eternally. Yes, there will be people in hell who witness miracles before their eyes. They saw God's power at work. They, they might even have sang song for Jesus, claim allegiance to Jesus, even went to church all their lives, but they did it all for the wrong reasons. Without true faith. And here Jesus. Let's continue our text. Verse 46. He comes back to Cana. The town where he had turned water into wine. And this, the, the, the news of this miracle has spread. To the point that the, you have Jesus' reputation. All the way to Capernaum. Which is 25 miles distance. And here you have a royal official. This noble man. Who works for Herod. Now you know Herod, he, he is a wicked king, he, he, he is involved in incest and he's about to behead John the Baptist. But remember, later he will call Jesus so they can see miracles. But he has no intention to actually repent and believe in Jesus' message. And he allows him to be crucified. But again, this man is in, in danger. He says, the text says his, his son was sick. And so he heard that Jesus is back into Galilee from Jerusalem and he runs to him. And Jesus responds to this request 
of healing his son informs us about the issue of this man and by extension of all Israel. They claim to believe in God, but God is still stranger to their lives. That like the majority of people, they go to God only when they're in trouble. And even as rarely as it happens, why are they going? Not because of the goodness of God and the fact that He has, is worthy of my worship. They want, to, they, they want to commit their lifetime to something else, not to obey Jesus Christ. They're, they're, there's just a utilitarian approach to go to Jesus for what they can get from God. But the, the problem once is, is solved, then it's gone. And then the search for God ceases. And so Jesus has to address this problem. And here is the fourth point, verse 48. The, the passage from boredom to fascination. People becoming fascinated with the supernatural, but not because of the gospel. Some translation uh, rendered this in a very rebuking word, verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you by no means will believe. That is the condition that you people, not just this, this young noble man, but the entirety of the nation of Israel, the so-called people of God, they are, however, hardened in their hearts and unable to believe without miracles. And that you people is very derogative. It's almost like a critic to them. We already saw the word sign in chapter 1. It's a token, a miracle. And then you have wonders. And the emphasis of a wonder is the response of excitement and amazement that a miracle caused. However, it is only temporary. If it's not followed by a moral transformation, turning to God in faith, that amazement is pointless. Soon to be forgotten. And the Jewish people had this reputation to constantly ask for signs to the point that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Which by Jesus is considered as a sign of great weakness. To be dazzled by the miracle as a show, but without those wonders, by no means. They will refuse to believe. To, they won't have faith at all. That rebuke that Jesus gives to this man is intended to test this man's faith, by the way. If he remains in unbelief and goes to hell, that's a far greater problem than the fact that his son will be physically healed. That is far more important. So you have met hurt people. I will believe once God will prove to me this or that. That this man is coming to Jesus from, for what he can obtain from him, but not yet for who Jesus is. And so many people can be interested in supernatural healing, encounters with angels, demon casting. They have even willing to look into all sort of things, UFO, but there's no room in their hearts and lives for the word of God to actually bear fruit. This is all backwards. Miracles are meant for you to embrace by faith the message and the person of Jesus so that you may have eternal life. That is the reason why Martin Lloyd-Jones used to be a doctor, a physician. And he healed so many patients. He had a good career. He left it all behind to preach the word of God. And if you would ask him, why did he do that? It's because, sir, I, I, 
I can, I can heal all these people of their physical illness. But if they keep going to hell afterwards, it will be pointless. There's something far greater and more important that Jesus wants us to see here. And the worst thing is when we place such things as God has to fix this problem in my life, otherwise I'm not going to believe in Him. That is inadequate and immature. And in fact, in the case of the Jews, it was evidence that there is a judgment of God blinding them. Give us a sign and then we shall believe. No, faith, faith, friends, true faith is by definition, you surrender and rely upon God, even at the cost of setting aside all your excuses or your need of evidence or your reasoning. This is why John Calvin describes reason as a man walking in the dark. Or it's like when you travel on a journey and there's a momentary lightning. You see everything clear for a second through that miracle. But then you go back to the dark and you're left to yourself. Faith understands that you cannot make a map about everything in your life and your future and the things you don't understand. And it jumps and trusts and relies in Christ, in His person and in the gospel. However, this man is brought to the fifth change in our text, from happiness to desperation. And that's what has to have to happen, sadly, in most of us. That you have to feel so desperate, so at the end of yourself, that finally you're pushed to trust the Lord. This royal officer, this rich man, is imploring and begging and insisting to Jesus to come down to his house and heal his beloved son. Who is at the point of death. This is a tragedy. He's about to die. I mean how would you feel. If your son. Is about to die. And you're br at the brink of losing him. And so he keeps pleading with the Savior. Verse 49. He won't do. He, he will not be put off. And no matter the reluctance of Jesus. No matter the, the resistance. He says sir come down. At once before my son die. This is a life of death. Jesus, you must answer my prayer. For some of us, God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. When we finally give up control and give up our doubts and finally trust Him. Yes, you may be rich. But you see, death doesn't spare rich or poor, no matter your background. You cannot always find a solution to your problems through money. Makes me think about the bad guy in Titanic who is trying to buy his passage on the lifeboat through money. And the, the, guy, the guy throws the money at him as people are drowning. He says, your money is not going to save you now. You can't always fix your problem. And how sad. How sad for this man that he sees his family, his son to, on the verge of dying. And he, there's nothing he can do. And so he has to go to Jesus. And there's... And there he witnessed the benefit of this affliction. And I want you to see the benefit of the affliction here. Is that if you're willing to see that it's God brings you to, to complete desperation. So that your prayers, your communication with him is no longer in apathy or self-sufficiency. Because you got all the things you need. But you become a, a real shout and a desperate need of rescue. So that you may not drown in your condition. 
And most of all, that you will not go and be drowned through your sin. And you say, Jesus, I need you. Come to my rescue. I see my sin now for all the ugliness it has been. And all the mess that it has brought me so far. Please come into my life. Answer my call. It makes me think of Zechariah. Isaiah goes to him and he says, set your house in order, you're about to die. He turns toward the wall and he starts weeping and says, Lord, remember me. Remember me that I walk in your faithfulness. Do not let me die. God speaks to Isaiah immediately. Go back and tell Hezekiah, I heard his prayer. It is there, friend, that our impatience and fretful attitude is put to test. That you are forced to give up control. Notice also that true faith does not give up, but it perseveres. It keeps on asking, keeps on knocking until it receives the answer from the Lord. And it won't let go until it receives that answer from the Lord. Even when it encounters obstacles after obstacles. In fact, God may use those delays in answer that prayer precisely to test the genuineness of one's faith. And there Jesus, our sixth point now, Moves from silence to, pron- to, to speak up, to pronunciation. Verse 50 to 51. You see, God intervenes in that impossible situation. And you see that because you believe, just like this man, the mere word of Jesus. Jesus, just say the word, and my son shall be healed. That's why Jesus says in verse 50, go your way, back home, in peace. And the things comes to pass. You see that? He doesn't need to go back home. He is God on earth. He can create life. But he's also dismissive here because of the previous critic in verse 48. The problem of the miraculous. Being exalted over the need for true faith without miracle. It is better in the eyes of God those who believe without having seen. Says Jesus to Thomas. And so in this way... He is saying, unless you believe, you you would see no miracle. But now, because of his desperation, he says, your son lives. By his word, his son is healed. That initial hesitancy of Jesus is explained for us. It's not that Jesus did not care or did not have compassion about this poor son that is about to die. But he's testing the man. And in fact, he now displays his great kindness by answering his request immediately. There's no more panic for you. No more anxiety for you to go back home with all the thoughts of what will happen. What will this man do though? Will he go back? Will he believe my words? And that word for us was enough. And, and the noble man believed. He could now have insisted that Jesus come with him to double check. After all, it's 25 miles walk back. And what to do if he's still sick? And then he will die. This is another test. Test number two. Just say the word. Will that be enough? And it was for him. He went his way without evidence. He acted on Jesus' mere words. And guess what? Verse 51. As he was going down. No sooner he leaves Jesus. He proceeds on his way home. And his servants come back on the road. road. And what do they tell him? Your son lives. Do you ask the same for Jesus? Jesus, just say the word. Is Christ's word as good as his presence? Yes or no? 
It is beautiful that when you finally believe, you finally trust in that simple word from God, that simple promise from God that you can believe and have eternal life and you grasp it, you trust in it. Instead, you can see week after week, month after month, year after year, you hear the calling of God through the preaching of His word and yet you remain untouched, unbothered, unconverted. And the eternal danger that awaits you because of that doubt. Even the life of this son is wrapped up in a single word from Jesus. Our eternal destiny is. But this royal officer hangs on in his life on the word of Jesus. And he obeys, friends. He simply goes back. He doesn't nobody trust that the word of Jesus will come to pass. Are you going to bet on Jesus' word? And what he says in his word. See how true faith leads to action. Are you going to be like this man who this morning walks back home by faith? He turns back. He walks back. Hanging on to this just one word from the master. Even for the life of the beloved thing. Whatever you treasure the most like a son. Are you going to wait on the Lord in a delay? As we saw this morning. Or you're going to try to do like Sarah in the Sunday school. We watched Sarah. That she tried to continue trying to make ma- take matters in her own hands. And that leads only to deeper problems and conflicts and despair. Are you going to trust the Lord when he's silent? Are you going to believe that he will provide for all your need? That yes, he can take care and help you to make ends meet if you truly trust him. And his word. And the promise of God toward his true children of God that he shall provide for them. Even through the thick and thin. Or are you going to trust your own limit judgment? Are you going to believe that he can intervene and heal the brokenness that is deep-seated in your family? Brought by sin? Are you going to believe him for the salvation of your children and grandchildren? Are you going to believe that his word has still power to heal Constant pain and sicknesses that you brought, have you brought them to prayer to the master just as often as you bring them to the doctor? Are you going to believe that all the things you go through now, even the afflictions, even the sorrow, even the sickness, even the delays, even the disappointments, everything is working together to your eternal good? Is Theta Baptist Church going to believe that God can give us the harvest of soul that we saw last week? prophesized through Jesus and the woman at the well. And ultimately, will you believe that he died on the cross? That there he lets you find his peace and contentment without you living in constant fear and anxiety that what he has done is done, that all of your sin has been nailed to the cross, that all the justice of God has been accomplished And the mercy of God has been shown in what He has done. What He is currently doing and what He will do in your life. Will Christ be enough for you? Friends, faith is total, sincere surrender, unconditional trust. That is what Jesus is looking for. More than the miracle. More than solving the particular situation. And that leads us to our last point. Number seven. When the nobleman, the rich nobleman is forced to change from seeing things as chance 
to an actual orchestration from the providence of God in this whole ordeal. Have you ever had to recognize like him this absolute sovereignty of God in the situation to the last tiny bit of the response? I mean, the story of this man, it's witnessing how exact the answer is. Not just that God answers, but how precisely he answered. And so he has a question to his servants. He wants to determine what was the time when the son began to heal. And they say yesterday. Now you remember yesterday because Capernaum and Cana is six hours walk probably. And to do more 25 miles by foot, it takes time. But again, he says also the seventh hour, which is one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever suddenly disappeared. Have you ever had to witness something like that? Even an unbeliever can witness this, by the way. My grandpa, who you know, is a Catholic, he did not know the Lord, but he told me of this rainy day. He was driving the car, and all of a sudden, in the midst of the rain, he didn't see, but there's a here that the light of the truck are coming through him. He doesn't steer the wheel. He doesn't do anything. He just closes he has his eyes, and he thought it was over. His life was over. He opens his eyes, and truck was gone and he was on the right side of the way like what what on earth happened and this is the click for this man the mental click in the royal official this noble man he realized that it was the same hour the very same time to the last minute to the last split second he remembered that this was the very moment when jesus said those simple words your son lives it clinched on him Nothing else he can do at this point, but what? But believe. Now, this is the second time that the text says believe. But the first time, this is more than just believe that Jesus will do the miracle. And then I turn back and walk back home. This now is a, a, a different level. A full-scale profession of faith. You embrace the person of Christ as his genuine follower. Which you can have the first step was like, wow, God exists. God really exists. This is really God's power at work here. But there's a second step, you see. You become a true believer. You become a true Christian. You become born again. That was the difference between the two moments when C.S. Lewis was a, a famous intellectual. He was an atheist there in England. And he, he one night in anger and frustration on his desk, he pounded at his desk and says, it is true, God exists. I submit, it is true. After years of years of being a skeptic, but there's a second moment where he truly believed. On a Christmas Eve church service, he goes into this Anglican parish. He's sitting there and even though everything is just a normal traditional service, his heart is changed and overwhelmed. And Christ has been born in his heart. And there's joy. And he now says, I am a Christian. That is the difference, you see, between a surface belief and the true belief of this man. In fact, our text says, he, as he tells the miracle to his family, his whole household believe. Including the servants brought the report. Including the son who had witness to this miracle in his own body. They all believe, they all become Christians, followers of Jesus. And that was the goal of Jesus all along. Not just that they say, wow, you remember that time where, 
where we got healed. Not just a physical heal, but this is faith, true faith. And so our text ends in verse 54, the same exact words of chapter 2, verse 11. Miracle, this is the second sign. This is the first sign. This is miracle number 2, which concludes for us the cycle of the first two miracles. And ties together what we've seen so far in weeks past. That between the wedding of Canaan and the healing of this nobleman's son, what do we make of this entire story and the process that the Gospel of John is going through? We make that, again, there is the ultimate goal of the miracle as opposed to the surface level miracle of just excitement and wonder. But again, this last seventh point shows us that just like Stephen Charnock, the Puritan once said, God has more remote ends than short-sighted souls are able to espy. The beauty of what gives God most glory is when we praise Him in thanksgiving, when we face situation that was no other response but to exclaim in worshipful attitude that there's nothing else but the powerful hand of God. That even doctors and other patients around are puzzled by the result. They're brought to reflect on God and there's no room for doubt. Chances moved out of the way. It had to be God and remove some of your misunderstanding about God. That just because, as we saw earlier, Jesus was reluctant or God seemed silenced or untouched by the suffering of the Son at first... It didn't mean that it was so. It didn't mean that. In fact, the story shows you that God was in complete control. To this last split second detail of your life. That God is really in control of everything that happens. That not one leaf falls to the ground without the Father allowing it to happen. And that should lead you to trust in Him. Even in the midst of the next trial. Even in the midst of the next disappointment. When you truly understand who Christ is... And you believe Him for your salvation. And friend, that is far more important than healing, solving of whatever problem you might have to face. In fact, it's better to remain in the problems that you face than for you to walk with a lofty, proudful heart. You have everything you wanted. Instead, you face the, the trial and you praise God for, for the problem. If that problem brought you to Jesus Christ. If that problem brought you to that greater intimacy with Him. So how do we conclude here, friends? That we live in this upside down world and only Jesus can overturn. And this changing that we saw from familiar to unfamiliar and all these different changes. It is not always pleasant. And it doesn't sadly bleed to the ultimate good. Because many do not receive Jesus as they should. Remember the, the young woman I told you in the beginning of the story. She saw a miracle, but she didn't seek Jesus who stood behind the miracle. She valued her life more than the eternal life that the Savior could provide to her. She sought her welfare more than the welfare of God and His Lordship over her life. She sought to have a good life, and that was more important and valuable to her than the God who brought healing and graciously gave her that good life. That kindness of God has surrounded her in a Christian environment. Even this pastor going toward her and speaking the word and praying for her. And that was good for nothing. 
Just like the hometowners of Jesus, that Jesus is walking before him, and they all despised him. She even encountered the living God in her problem, only to go back to a selfish life of sin. And if you witness to people like that, like this young pastor, be ready to, like Jesus, face the rejection, even from the closest acquaintances. But friends, what worse judgment she will have to face than those who didn't have the privileges she had. Friend, let her not be you today. That you hear the gospel over and over again. You are exposed to so much truth all this time. God gives you so many blessings and yet you keep ignoring the giver. I mean, what kind of desperation that God has to create in your life to make you realize how desperately you need Him? What bosom beloved sin does He has to kill to cause you to finally repent? All what it takes for you as you hear the word of God this morning is to turn around from this unbelief and take this first of step of faith like the noble man. Realize from this story that you are incapable on your own to be made well, to even accept God. That when God reveals Himself, He also reveals who you are, your sinfulness, in contrast to His holiness. And this makes people uncomfortable. That's why they're all comfortable with miracles until the writing appears on the wall and you're weighed in the, in the balance and found wanting. Without this, no miracle will do it. Remember Jesus' words to another rich man who now is in hell. We know this from another gospel. And uh, he, he is asking and pleading and someone may come back to life. But... Uh, Abraham from heaven says, if they don't hear, they don't trust, they don't obey the scripture that I am preaching to them, they will not believe even if the greatest miracle of a man raising from the dead will appear before their eyes. I mean, that's the amount of blindness that Jesus has faced. Unless you see a miracle, you by no means will believe. May God have mercy on us. May God have mercy on you. That this story of healing may bring true fruit. Otherwise, like Jesus' hometowners, you sit there in front of Jesus all this time and you still ignore Him. Only to face a judgment worse than... I mean, Capernaum faced so many miracles. What does Jesus say about Capernaum later? Your destiny shall be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if the miracles that have been done to Sodom and Gomorrah had been done among you, they would have repented. That is... The, the change that this miracle brings. Fam familiar hometown of Jesus becomes the unfamiliar place. A familiar circumstance becomes the unfamiliar miracle. So that you trust in this Christ.